1: Part 5. The Lord of Life. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26 to 34. Behold the birds of the heaven, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his span of life? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass, which to day is, and to morrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you? O ye of little faith, therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye had need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take care for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. For his example of freedom from care, Jesus called men to look up. There, overhead, free from all visible support, were the birds flying under the arch of heaven. He may have pointed to the rock doves, which lived in immense numbers in the valleys around the Sea of Galilee, and literally fly as a cloud with a whir of wings that causes a strong gust of wind. While man, by God's ordinance, must till the earth, and therefore must look ahead to the fulfillment of nature's cycle of growth, these creatures live for the day they do not sow and have no harvests. By whom are they fed? By your heavenly Father. He does not say theirs. Ask now the beasts, and they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, and they shall tell thee. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, Who knoweth not all these, that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind? Job chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. This teaching of the earth and the beasts, Jesus interprets. To them God is creator, and he giveth to the beast his food, and to the young ravens which cry, But to the believers he is Father. Are not they therefore of more value than many sparrows? Man burdens himself with care because he compares day with day and year with year. It is true that he is constituted in the image of God to look before and after, and he is not fully a man unless he uses his faculties diligently. But Jesus has deliberately chosen the example of those who cannot gather into barns to show that a man's life does not ultimately depend on his storage for the coming year. If, like the birds, he depends on God, why should he be consumed with anxiety whether this year will be better or worse than last? He may look to the future by sowing in order to reap, But if he carries the future as a burden on his own back, he will crush the germ of the life of the Spirit, which holds the promise of the life, which is life indeed. Let him be content with what it is to be a man, be content with what it is to be the dependent, the creature as little capable of sustaining himself as of creating himself. But if man will forget God and look after his own sustenance, then material care becomes our lot. Verse 27 contains a word which may be used of linear measure or, by an extension of meaning, of length of time. Both usages are to be found in the New Testament Here it is associated with the cubit, a linear measure. But does not the psalmist ask to know the measure of his days and say, Behold, thou hast made my days as an hand breadth? Age fits the context here and gives the saying a tang of ironic humour. Care does not lengthen life, but shortens it. The true recipe for length of life will be to recognize our powerlessness over it, and therefore to leave it to him who has the power. There is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 8 While the birds teach the folly of comparing our resources with those of others, The next example shows the folly of comparing our circumstances with others. Care has its roots in just such comparisons, for needs of warmth and decency account for only a small part of the anxiety over clothing. Far more is occasioned by social standards, the desire to impress others or the envy of what others have. Our standards are relative. Nearly always we compare ourselves with those one stage above us in rank or means. And so we convince ourselves that we do not ask anything unreasonable in wanting to do as they do in dress, housing, style of living, the distance we travel for holidays, or the money we spend on laying out the garden. From a woman's nail varnish to the horse of her husband's motor car, there is not one of the outer wrappings of life which may not give us a carking sense of inferiority. We may reject the idea with scorn, yet, perhaps unknown to ourselves, the worm of envy is gnawing in our rosebud and cankering the fragrance of living. Only the very young or the very foolish would wish to ape the luxury of a wholly different class of society from their own. Yet Jesus pricks the bubble of all such comparison by taking as example the extreme of magnificence, Solomon enthroned in regal array. For such comparisons differ only in degree. Every step up leads only to emulation of the rank above. We attain with much struggle the level of comfort or standard of appearance, which for the moment seems to fulfil our ambition. Ten years later the bloom has rubbed off our prize. That which gave us a glowing satisfaction is viewed with distaste. We must go on to get something more. Jesus saw that there is no limit to human vanity and no final standard but the pinnacle of splendor. So, says Jesus, consider the lilies. The verb is unusual and emphatic. Go as disciples and let them be your teacher. To look at the lilies a man must stoop. To consider them he must do more. He must humble himself and forget to compare himself with others. There the blooms grow in unclamorous beauty. They do not strive to be equal to neighboring flowers; they do not strive to be equal to neighboring flowers, nor by any hint or tacit assumption do they judge themselves superior. They toil not, neither do they spin they are what they are, effortlessly and without care, though not without all the incredible activity of root and veins and leaves, of plant physiology and biochemistry. The brief beauty of the Galilean spring provides many examples which would serve. Iris, ranunculus, a rich purple arum, all have been claimed as the lilies of the Lord's illusion. Claim can also be made for the native gladiolus, various species of which grow among the grain, often overtopping it, and illuminating the broad fields with their various shades of pinkish-purple to deep violet-purple and blue. Yet to have seen the intense scarlet hue and silky sheen of the anemone coronaria is to be convinced that here is the true comparison with the robes of the most magnificent of Israel's kings. No microscope can reveal flaws, as it will in the finest satins of man's weaving. Yet what is their end? Still blooming, they will be cut down along with the grass or straw, which, dried in the sun for a day, will make quick-burning fuel. A few handfuls will be put in the domestic oven. A pit in the ground between three feet and four feet deep, and about three feet wide, lined with baked clay. They will blaze up, and soon will make a good heat. Then the fuel will be removed, and the pottery wall wiped as well as may be of the layer of soot and ashes, and wafer-thin cakes of dough will be plastered on the hot sides of the oven, with a kind of cushion made to fit In a few moments they will be baked, and the fuel? Gone in smoke and flame, and a few ashes thrown out on the earth. So ends the glory of the lily. In the prophecy of Isaiah, all the goodliness of the flower of the field is a type of the man who withers like the grass before the hot wind from the desert. Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8 and the lesson conveyed is transience. Jesus draws attention to the lilies thrown into the oven, and the lesson is trust, shall not your Father much more clothe you? The way to reconciliation of the difference is already to be found in the prophecy. But the word of our God shall stand for ever. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The children of the Father are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth for ever. The first of Peter 1, verse 23 to 25. And this is the ground of the comparison which Jesus makes. If God so arrays the lilies, which are things of a day, what will he do for the sons of eternity? The conclusion is pointed with the reproachful apostrophe, O ye little of faith! The one Greek word rendered by a phrase in English is peculiar to Matthew, except for the parallel to this passage in Luke 12, verse 28. The use which Jesus makes of the two examples from nature rests on a foundation which was largely common ground for him and the Jews. It assumes, first of all, that nature is a unity. Unless plants, birds, and man all belong to one system, there would be no point in the illustrations, for there would be no valid ground for reasoning from one to another. The words of Jesus depend upon a doctrine of creation. For the same reason, his thoughts rest upon the unity of God. It relies upon consistency in his character constancy in his mode of action, and universality in his power. And these can only be true of the God who is one and who is without rival. God is both at unity with himself and universal in his supremacy. All depends on him. And while Jesus fully recognizes the existence of evil, these passages alone would be enough to show that he did not acknowledge evil as a personal power with a dominion of its own. The groundwork of thought underlying the comparisons is the declaration through Isaiah. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. From this one God all things have their origin, and in Him they all continue to exist. He alone is absolute being. Nothing can exist outside of or independently of Him. All things are His servants. While, however, all things are maintained as a unity within His universal Spirit, not all are of equal value and significance. For Jesus can reason in comparative terms. How much more? Rank and order within the system of creation are determined by purpose. And as the purpose of God is expressed in the terms righteousness and salvation, the highest place in the order of created things is given to man. The Lord, whose name is excellent in all the earth, is mindful of man and visits the Son of Man, because he made him to be crowned with glory and honor and to have dominion over the works of his hands. While all things are created for his pleasure or will, man, formed godlike in his potentiality, is made for God's own heart. It is no mere platitude to bring these ideas into a consideration of the sayings about the birds and the lilies. Human speculations have more often than not run counter to this belief in the unity of creation derived from the unity of its creator. If for the Jews it was a part of the common climate of thought, the reason was to be found in the scriptures they had received. And not in any genius of their own. And for Jesus, at any rate, we may be assured it was not accepted unconsciously like the air we breathe. It was a reality to be perceived with deep penetration, and with love, of heart, soul, and mind, to the Lord who gives all. If, in the mind of Jesus, flowers, birds, and fishes could teach the lesson of God's providence, The reason is that behind all creation is the Word of God, which brought it into being. So from the lilies we are led back to the great lesson of the first temptation. The Word is the reality behind phenomena, and in the Word men find life. There are people to whom this truth is unknown. Because they have not God in their knowledge, they live their lives in the fever and fret of care over externals. They're aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, without God and in the world. Having no part in God's covenant, they're ignorant of His power and without trust in His providence. These are the Gentiles. They, naturally enough, seek The verb in this context might mean hunt for. Seek to supply their needs of food and clothing and to establish their social standing by the style in which they do it. They have only their own powers to depend on and only one another's esteem to gain and therefore their lives must be a seeking for material things which perpetually vanish away. But to the disciples comes the assurance, your heavenly Father knoweth your needs. To the Gentiles, these things and all that they represent are a consuming aim. But the minds and lives of the disciples are turned to another end. With pointed contrast, they are told, but seek ye first. What? They are to seek the kingdom and righteousness of God. They are to seek his glory and to seek his face. That is to say, they are not so much to strive to get as to give. And in giving themselves to God, they will have the highest possession and the richest treasure, and the needs of this life will be added as the overflow of his bounty. There will be no need in that case to burden themselves with tomorrow, for tomorrow is God's. Sorrow and evil there must be as the discipline of life, but their measure is in His hand, and each day can bear its own burden.
0: The Teaching of the Master by Brother L.G. Sargent
1: Part 6 Living Under Judgment Chapter 1 Judges or Judged Matthew 7 verses 1 to 6 Judge not, that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. But why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? But considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me cast out the mote that is in thine eye? And, lo, a beam is in thine own eye. Hypocrite! Cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, And then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Give not to that which is holy to the dogs, Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, Lest they trample them under their feet, And turn again and rend you. With Matthew chapter 7, the sermon enters its final section, which forms a climax. Jesus has portrayed the disciple and his life in the world. He has shown that life can only be maintained by an intimate and secret communion with God. And this communion carries with it a dependence on God, which brings freedom from fear. By contrast, he has pictured the anxious and envious mind of those who compare their condition with the condition of others. Now he goes on to show the result of comparing ourselves with other men, not merely in our outward circumstances, but in our character. A perfect example of the man who constitutes himself judge in his own cause Is the Pharisee in Luke 18, verses 11 to 12. With fine irony, it is said that he stood and prayed thus with himself. With himself, because he was his own standard of reference. His words were, God, I thank thee that I am not as the rest of men, or even as this publican. But both he and the repentant tax-gatherer stood there and then, under the scrutiny of God. And as the outcome, one of them went down to his home justified, reckoned to be righteous. But it was not the Pharisee who was thus acquitted, but the self-confessed sinner who prayed God to be reconciled to him. The parable exactly illustrates the sayings of Matthew 7, verses 1-5, to which show from yet another angle the contrast between the righteousness of the true covenant people and the conventional righteousness of contemporary Judaism. The man who lives with God and in God lives under judgment. He is continually known to the living God. But beyond that continuous discernment by the all-seeing eyes of God, there is a final judgment to come, when sentence will be pronounced and destiny determined. The course of thought which leads to the parable of the two builders leaves no doubt that Jesus has this day of judgment in view when he says, as the tense of the verb implies, Cease from judging that ye be not judged. Judged by whom? Reverent avoidance of the divine name by using the passive voice of the verb is part of the idiom of Jesus. What he is saying is that the man who knows God's covenant and keeps it lives his whole life as one who will in that day be judged by God. Constant awareness of judgment to come may, however, have more than one effect. For a man to know that he is measured by a standard not of his own making, and that in a future day his true and hidden self will be laid bare, must give seriousness and integrity to life. But there is a danger that those who so live will demand that others shall conform to their pattern. In doing this, they transfer to themselves that standard by which they have tried to test their own lives. They make themselves the measuring rule for other men. And so out of their very zeal comes the peril of censoriousness. They make themselves the judges instead of the judged. They are solicitous for the other man's welfare, and offer help in a way which they think courteous and kindly. Permit me to cast out of the moat out of thine eye. But in fact their love is self-love. They do not really forget to themselves in the other man's need, but their sense of superiority shines the brighter by contrast with his fault. Even if the desire to help is sincere, they will always think, It was through my strength that he overcame his weakness. But we may go further. To judge in this context cannot escape from its harsher meaning of to condemn, and to condemn is potentially to destroy. It is to do violence against a man's soul, an act not of love but of hate, and in the light of Matthew 5, verse 21 to 22, having in it the germ of murder why has a man who was pursuing righteousness fallen into such a slough little by little he has come to see the errors to which he was not prone looming large and his own failings have dwindled no love is so blind as self-love and at last his vision is so blocked that his attempt at aid would be play-acting. is like a sick man with the bearing beam of a roof across his eye, trying to remove a splinter or a bit of dried stem from someone else's. For the beam in his eye is his self-esteem. If he then measures out condemnation to others, The same measure awaits him in the day when he thinks he will be justified. The old legal principle of measure for measure has returned, not in the material realm but the spiritual, and the man for whom it was abrogated by the command not to resist evil is himself subject to the penalty of an eye for an eye. Forgiveness of others paves the way to God's forgiveness of ourselves. Condemnation of others leads to his condemnation of ourselves. Even in little things, the self-sufficient spirit may reveal itself in continual grumbling at others' real or imagined shortcomings. And to this James applies the Lord's words. Murmur not, brethren, one against another, that ye be not adjudged. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. The grumblers, like the Pharisees, are more conscious of themselves than of God. The proverbial saying about the moat and the beam is found in rabbinical writings and is an example of the caustic Jewish humour. Its picturesque hyperbole gives no difficulty to those who know the speech of the English countryside, where something small may be about as big as a bee's knee, or a very thin man like a rasher of wind. The salty idiom of unsophisticated men who live close to the soil offers the best parallel to the language of Jesus. The Lord's words have their reflection in Romans 2, verse 3, And reckonest thou, O man, who judgest them that practice such things, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Romans 14 is a sustained plea for refraining from judgment in things which can be left to the individual conscience. One man, says the Apostle, may observe dietary restrictions and do it for the Lord's sake. Another, equally sincere, may eat with thankfulness any food which comes. If each acts with the Lord in mind, and his mental state is vital to the argument, then to his Lord he stands or falls. Therefore apostrophizing in turn the representatives of the opposing points of view, Paul says, But thou, why dost thou judge thy brother? Or thou again, why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. We are helped by the parallel which sets judge against set at naught. The judgment which Paul has in mind here is a condemnation which easily passes over into contempt for the brother for whom Christ died. To Paul himself it is a very small thing that he should be subject to the scrutiny of men. He is not even his own judge. For even if he knows nothing against himself, he is not therefore justified. His examiner is the Lord. Therefore, he says, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. Judge is indeed a word of many meanings and only the context can decide where the balance of the meaning lies in any given case. Judgment, in the sense of equitable decision, is cited by the Lord himself along with mercy and faith, as the weightier matters of the law, which the scribes and Pharisees had left undone. Lydia could rightly say to Paul and Silas, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come unto my house. If therefore judgment in the sense of condemnation of others is excluded, judgment in the sense of discernment is enjoined. The disciple has to be judicious without being judicial, a dilemma which is only fully resolved by a principle given a few verses later for the remainder of the chapter shows progressive stages of division among men through the action of the Word of God. Even in this life, the Word puts men to a test and reveals something of their true character. And the first division is between those who have reverence for holy things and those who in their sensuality find holy things offensive. The holy thing was, under the law, the term used for food offered sacrificially, of which only the priests and their households could partake, and then only if they were ceremonially clean. On the other hand, the flesh of animals torn by beasts was forbidden altogether for food, and was to be cast to the dogs. These ritual requirements provide the terms which Jesus applies to things of the Spirit. Dogs were in Jewish parlance the uncircumcised, and swine were held in special abhorrence from the time that Antiochus Epiphanes ordered them to be profanely sacrificed. But for Jesus the distinction is not a physical one, but moral and mental. The contemporary verb quoted in Second of Peter two verse twenty two, and perhaps partly dependent on Proverbs twenty six verse eleven, makes dogs and swine types of the grossness of sensual human nature. Proverbs eleven twenty two is the only Old Testament example of swine used in a proverbial simile and carries a like idea of ignorant sensuality. But, to quote by way of illustration only, the Syriac of Ecclesiasticus 22, verse 13, has, Talk not much with a fool, and consort not with a pig. Beware of him, lest thou have trouble, and thou becomest defiled when he shaketh himself. This in turn recalls Proverbs 9, verses 7 and 8. He that correcteth a scorner getteth to himself shame. And he that reproveth a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Reprove a wise man, and he will love thee. And compare also Proverbs 23, verse 9 pearls of the spirit word will only evoke blasphemy from the blindly ignorant that which is holy is not to be exposed to profanation by sensual men are we then to judge them and say this one is worthy to have the word and that one is not by no means it is not for us to condemn to assess what they are in god's sight still less to damn, to deem them outside the pale of God's mercy. What chance, then, would there be for a all of Tarsus at a time when he was as vicious toward the ecclesia as a thwarted pariah? Nonetheless, the truth we hold and the salvation it offers are God's gifts and to be handled with reverence for the giver. These words do in fact impose on believers one of the most difficult discriminations they are called on to make. On the one hand, no verse is more liable to be used unwarrantably as a veil for moral cowardice or spiritual snobbery. It cannot mean that preaching is to be withheld for fear that the word should be despised. Yet it does impose a responsibility for judging the time and manner of our witness. Even in spreading broadcast the gospel of the kingdom, we can observe a decent reticence about those things which the natural man cannot receive. God forbid that we should hoard our pearls, but neither should we scatter them like garbage in the pig's trough, where they will be snouted out and trampled in the mire. There is a certain egotism in the attempt to force salvation on the unwilling and resentful. It betrays both a lack of regard for the sanctity of God and a lack of respect for the individuality of men. Only God can claim men's hearts, and he draws them without forcing them into his mould. We need to remember that while by His grace we may be agents of His word, it is God who works through it, and not we ourselves. When we are most self-forgetful, we shall be at least self-assertive in our dealings with God and men, and then our work in the saving of souls from death will best stand the test of time.
0: The Teaching of the Master by Brother L.G.
1: Sargent Part 6, Chapter 2 The Father's Gifts and the Son's Response Matthew Chapter 7, Verses 7-12 to 12. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every asker receiveth, and the seeker findeth, and to the knocker it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom, if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. How comes it that the Word reveals two classes of men so sharply distinguished? Are men born swine, and if so can they help it, is not their swinishness predetermined? Are men predestined to be of one sort or the other? Or is there not in fact a trace of the swine in all of us? To these problems which are raised by Matthew chapter 7 verse 6, the saying in verses 7 to 8 provides the answer. And it is vital that we should grasp what that answer is but our understanding of it will mold our attitude to ourselves and to others. The three emphatic imperatives, ask, seek, knock, imply both that man needs to ask of God, and that to ask is in his power. While they have their ground in man's privation, they triumphantly declare his freedom of will. They indicate that a man is not condemned of God because he is by nature sensual, but because he seeks nothing beyond his sensuality. The words are, it is true, spoken to the disciples, who stand related as children to the Father. But they are disciples, as yet very imperfect in understanding and self-control, and the saying really contains a charter of freedom, to all who will seek. Seeking, however, is not the casual motion of half-hearted sentiment. The verbs imply a sustained act. Be asking, be seeking, be knocking. And those who receive are those who are characterized as the askers, seekers, knockers. Not those who knock once, but those who by reason of their earnest faith continue knocking. Their pattern is the Syrophoenician woman, and in Luke the same saying is introduced by the parable of the friend borrowing loaves at midnight, while the theme is further illustrated by the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. If persistence will wear down even human obduracy, what will it do with a loving Heavenly Father who receives it as a mark of earnestness? Therefore says James, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. There must be constancy in his asking. If the portrait of the asker is thus limned, these verses also and far more fully delineate the giver. In Matthew 5, verses 44 to 48, God is shown as the Creator who gives sun and rain to all His creatures as an act of uncaused love. But here He is the Father in a responsive interchange of love with His children. And this is a love of which human fatherhood offers a dim parable. Men may be niggardly in their gifts and dwarfed in their hearts, but when their children ask for food... Even human nature revolts from giving them stones without nourishment, or reptiles which cause harm. How much more, then, will the Heavenly Father, with all his boundless generosity, give good gifts? But what gifts? In the course of the sermon's train of thought, bodily needs have now been left behind, and the Lord has dwelt on the disciples' relation to judgment and the holy things. Our contemplation is carried over into the realm of spiritual reality and finality, and it is precisely in these things that even the bounty of God can only be given to those who ask. Only those who hunger and thirst can be satisfied with His righteousness. To others it would seem husks, and only those who are so filled can be sustained with eternal life a man cannot be born of water and of the spirit without his own desire and without rebirth in its fullest sense he cannot enter into that eternal kingdom where flesh and blood has no place the spiritual creation is god's no less than the physical but it is a creation wrought through men's willing self-surrender as of old the operative power is the Word, but the stuff in which the Word works is no longer unorganized organized dust, but the minds of living men. It is for this reason that Jesus here reveals the character of the divine love from another aspect than in Matthew 5, verse 44 to 48. And while God giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, Jesus is unerring in linking Ask, and it shall be given you, and wisdom. That is, with the spiritual endowment needed, if faith is to be perfected through endurance, and endurance is to reach its full end in a man grown to his moral stature and complete, lacking no part or member. Luke's variant of the saying, too, draws out its meaning. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? The Holy Spirit cannot in this context stand for some special gift, such as the power to heal or speak with tongues. Whatever is signified here comes as naturally to those who ask as bread. Nor, of course, can it be a supernatural enlightenment which guides without the need of studying the Word. It is the Spirit in the Word which works in men as they seek God. But through the Word God Himself worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure, richly giving from His own singleness of heart. As in Matthew 5, verse 44, so here. The character of God is to be reflected in His children. Many of the misunderstandings of the golden rule of verse 12 arise from overlooking the therefore with which it begins. Its antecedent is in verse 8, To him that knocketh it shall be opened, therefore all things whatsoever ye would. But while this appears to be the logical connection, the verses between have richly filled in the portrayal of the Father, and as a result have enhanced the force of the conclusion. This is, in effect, you ask of God, and He gives. You would like men to be as generous in spirit to you as the Father is? Therefore be so to them. God is the pattern for His sons. But this carries us to a further point. Even the power to conform to that pattern must come from God's good gift, for it does not dwell in human nature. It is only through His Spirit, mediated through His Word, that mortal man can so shine with the reflected light of God's moral glory. Further than this, the connection of thought enlarges a principle which has already been laid down In Matthew 6 verse 14 to 15 if you forgive you will be forgiven if not then not so in this passage this condition for acceptable prayer is made to apply not only to forgiveness but to all the relations of spiritual life if you are to receive you must not only ask but give if God's bounty is to be accorded to you You must show bounty towards men. The therefore, for this reason, in the golden rule has in consequence a threefold force. It means, one, because God is so to you, be so to men. Two, because God gives good gifts, you will be enabled to be like him. And three, because without this likeness you cannot be in communion with God, you must be like him. In Luke six verse twenty seven to thirty six, the context of the saying is the command: "Love your enemies, give to every one that asketh of thee, and of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again." And as ye would, in different contexts, therefore, the same command is based on a, the example of the divine love which extends to enemies, and b the love which the father devotes to his children. And it is in this that Christ's saying is unique. Many moral systems have included the principle, do as you would be done by, usually in the negative form of Hillel's summary of the law, that which is hateful to thyself do not to thy neighbor. There were ethical thinkers who approached a more positive form, such as the Chinese Mo Tse, in the 4th century B.C., who is translated as saying, if we were to have the same regard for others as we have for ourselves, who would do anyone an injustice? Regard everyone else as you would yourself, and look upon the things of others as you would your own. But even here the kernel of the thought is the avoiding of injustice, and it is from this negative starting point that Moetzee reasons out to a wider principle of regard for others. Such reasoning reaches one of the highest peaks in civilized thinking on the conduct of man to man. But Jesus stands alone in making conduct to our neighbor, depend on our knowledge of God, and by this means interlocking the two commands in which the Lord is summarized, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The positive form in which he casts the injunction follows inevitably from this mode of thought. Love cannot be negative and will never be confined into a cool restraint from evil. And therefore the disciples of Jesus are not merely to refrain from doing harm, but to overflow with good. And where good is the motive of life, there is no room for evil. This vital and creative attitude to their neighbors, Jesus declared emphatically to be the Law and the Prophets. The essence of law and prophets is, to his insight, not restraint, but love. Not the avoidance of malice or injury, but positive goodness. And so, inverting Hillel's summary, Jesus opens up a new vision of the aim of the old revelation. The language of the command deserves to be examined carefully. All things whatsoever comprises not merely an unlimited number of different things, but the whole of things, the entire attitude of life must be governed by this principle, for it is even so that we are to do to men, and so means in this way, and not merely that particular thing. Once the precision of the language is perceived, The command is lifted beyond the reach of any narrow literalism which might frustrate its aim. Circumstances differ so widely that there may be no comparison between particular acts which we might desire to be done to us, and the act which we might conceivably do to this or that other person. But the Lord lays down a principle which transcends all such limitations. The use of the plurals men, them, should eliminate misunderstanding in another direction. One of the stock criticisms of the rule has been, suppose two or more men band together to do evil, pledging themselves not to betray one another. Is not each doing to the other as he would the other should do to him? But the rule is not, as ye would this man should do to you, do to him. It is, As you would wish all or any man to do to you, so do to any and all of them. It allows neither of limit nor evasion. It demands that we shall identify ourselves with any and everyone, not ourselves, and with all who are not ourselves, and to be to each, to any and to all, what we would wish them to be to us we cannot therefore do to any one what is contrary to the good of mankind if we cannot do for the peasant in the gobi desert the same thing that we can do for the man who lives next door we can have the same attitude of life towards both which will find its expression in any way that opportunity affords it is this principle which provides the key to the problem referred to in the previous chapter How are we to distinguish without judging? The answer is by placing ourselves in the other man's shoes. We may know then both his defects and his need. We may recognize all too clearly his unfitness to receive the precious things of spiritual truth, which will only fill him with revulsion. But we shall not judge him by the standard of our self-superiority, and mentally consign him to perdition, because he does not come up to our own measurement of ourselves. Christ himself is the supreme example of his own principle. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And his service for men culminated in giving his life a ransom for many. He died for the ungodly, And if God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ had died for us, we cannot do other than commend our love towards those who are still sinners. If not, we have not the Spirit of Christ, and are none of his. Once again, the cross of Christ is the perfect demonstration of his teaching. The golden rule could never anywhere else have so deep a fulfillment, For here at the same instant, by his death, Christ repudiated all sin and identified himself with all sinners. He was the representative of humanity in its unfathomable need. For the Lord made the inquiry for us all to meet upon him. The fact of the cross, then, must govern our attitude even to the dogs and swine, Of degraded humanity we too were sinners they too are men what would we that they should do to us if we were as they are this does not mean what do they want with their present perverted outlook it means what should I knowing God's truth want if I could see myself in their position This attitude is not sentimental, because it does not disguise realities. The disciple does not say that after all swinishness is just the swine's way, and we must be charitable to it. He does not tolerate the sinner by minimizing the sin. To do so would not be to proclaim the cross, but to deny it. For the very aim of the cross was to show sin for what it is precisely because sin is sin. It was a binding necessity that the Son of Man should suffer if men were to be redeemed from their bondage. But sharing their nature, which in itself needed redemption, He also morally made Himself one with the sons of Adam, not in their sin, but in their need. While his sharing of their nature made such an identification possible, his love made it a reality. For their sakes, he bore the agony of the garden and the torture of the cross. And because he has voluntarily done this for us while we were yet sinners, he reveals depth on depth of meaning in these words of the Golden Rule for the essence of the rule is such an identification of ourselves with others as he made when he who knew no sin was made sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of god in him in such an identification with others there is as it were a breaking down of the bounds of personality and yet the result is not to empty a man's own personality but to fill it. Just as Jesus becomes not more like those for whom he died, but more unlike by the very fact of his surrender on their account, so his disciple, in identifying himself with others, becomes not less a person, but more. He does not become a medley of pale reflections of other men, but an individual more distinct because of stronger faith and larger heart. Men take note of him that he has been with Jesus. He lives, yet not he, but Christ lives in him. And the life which he now lives in the flesh, he lives by the faith of the Son of God, who loved him and gave himself for him. It is in this transcending of the bounds of personality, whereby personality itself becomes not emptied but enriched, that the rule as pronounced by Jesus so far surpasses the negative form which merely restrains injustice.